The House is in recess this week and will return next Monday, September 25th. They'll stay in session through Thursday, September 28th. The Senate will return today for a short week and will stay in session through Wednesday. Last week on the House floor, the House returned on Tuesday and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House resumed consideration of H.R. 3354, the eight-bill minibus appropriations bill. They considered 28 amendments on Wednesday, then on Thursday morning, took a break from consideration of the minibus to take up and pass H.R. 3679, the Criminal Alien Gang Member Removal Act. That bill does exactly what it sounds like it does. It makes an alien inadmissible or deportable due to membership in a criminal gang. Because believe it or not, under current law, membership in a criminal gang does not, in and of itself, make an alien inadmissible or deportable. The bill passed by a vote of 233 to 175, with 25 members not voting. Then they returned to consideration of H.R. 3354, the appropriations minibus. They considered another nine amendments. Then they passed the bill by a vote of 211 to 198, with 25 members not voting. They passed one more bill under suspension of the rules, and then they were done. This week on the House floor, they're in recess. No action on the House floor. Last week on the Senate floor, the Senate returned on Monday and took up H.R. 2810, the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. By a vote of 89 to 3, the Senate invoked cloture on the motion to proceed. On Tuesday, the Senate voted by 81 to 16 to confirm Kevin Allen Hassett to be chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. On Wednesday, during consideration of the NDAA, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky offered an amendment to repeal the authorization for the use of military force from 2001 and the authorization for the use of military force against Iraq from 2002. He wanted to force Congress to debate on whether or not we should be taking military action. The Senate voted to table the amendment, that is, kill it, by a vote of 61 to 36. On Thursday, the Senate voted by 80 to 17 to confirm the new Deputy Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Also on Thursday, the Senate passed 21 bills and confirmations by voice vote or unanimous consent. Twelve of the confirmations were new U.S. attorneys. On Friday, the Senate voted by 94 to 9 to invoke cloture on Senate Amendment 1003. That's Senator McCain's amendment in the nature of a substitute for the NDAA that's now on the floor of the Senate. And then they were done. This week on the Senate floor, the Senate will return today at 3 p.m. with the first vote scheduled for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will conduct two roll call votes. First will be a cloture vote on H.R. 2810 as amended. After they invoke cloture, then they'll move to passage of H.R. 2810, the NDAA, as amended. Additionally, Majority Leader McConnell has filed cloture on the nomination of Noel J. Francisco to serve as Solicitor General of the United States. This will be a short week for the Senate due to the Jewish holiday. The Senate will finish its business Wednesday and is currently scheduled to return next Monday, September 25th. To the Clinton email front, while Hillary Clinton is on an extended tour of the subcontinent hawking her latest memoir, a Maryland judge last Monday ordered the state bar to open an investigation into three attorneys who helped her delete her private emails. Anne Arundel County Circuit Court Judge Paul F. Harris Jr. said the complaints filed against Cheryl Mills, Heather Samuelson, and David Kendall were egregious, and the state bar could not just dismiss them, as had happened in some other jurisdictions. Ty Clevenger, a lawyer who has pursued sanctions against Clinton and her legal team in other venues, brought the complaint before the Maryland bar. On the debt ceiling, 
Remember last week when we were concerned over the debt ceiling deal President Trump cut with Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi because it meant that the debt ceiling and government funding would be tied together in December and that would increase Democrats' leverage over those December negotiations? Well, it turns out there's a value to experience and there's a value to being in the majority. We need not have worried over that aspect of the negotiations at least. The deal cut last week did not raise the debt ceiling. Instead, it suspended the debt ceiling. That is, right now, the law that says the U.S. Treasury can only borrow money up to $19.8 trillion is suspended. And that means the Treasury can issue new debt until the law goes back into effect on December 8th, when the current agreement runs out. But that doesn't mean everything will come to a screeching halt on December 8th, either. At that point, the debt limit will be reset at whatever it might be at that point. And then the Treasury Secretary can once again use his so-called extraordinary measures to keep paying bills even when he has no money to do so. He does this by shifting numbers around on various government ledgers. So, back to what we learned last week. It turns out that controlling the paper, as Majority Leader McConnell puts it, does count for something. When he codified the deal into legislative text, he took steps to ensure that Treasury Secretary Mnuchin would once again be able to use these so-called extraordinary measures to extend the government's ability to pay its bills when the debt limit suspension is lifted on December 8th and the debt limit is reimposed. Minority Leader Schumer had specifically wanted that taken out, but McConnell understood its significance and kept it in the legislative text. He's the majority leader, so he gets to choose. So when the House and Senate voted to codify that deal, they voted to give the Treasury Secretary the ability to use his extraordinary measures beginning again on December 8th. That means the debt ceiling won't actually have to be raised again for a few months beyond December. And that means the debt ceiling and government funding will not be tied to one another in that December negotiation. On the immigration front. Last Wednesday evening, less than a week after having Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the termination of President Obama's illegal Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, executive action, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi joined President Trump for dinner at the White House. They ate Chinese food, a favorite of Schumer's, and they must have had a good conversation because when they were done, the two Democrat leaders issued a statement announcing that they had come to an agreement with the president over codifying the DACA program into law without funding for the border wall. Their statement blindsided Republican congressional leaders for the second time in two weeks. Within a few hours, as word spread, the Republican and conservative reaction was furious. By Thursday morning, President Trump was denying he had agreed to anything more than seeking to codify DACA. But he issued confusing and contradictory statements throughout the course of the day. On Thursday, he said specifically, quote, we're not looking at citizenship. We're not looking at amnesty. We're looking at allowing people to stay here. Everybody's on board. They want to do something. We're not talking about amnesty. We're talking about taking care of people, end quote. But then White House spokeswoman Lindsey Walters said the president, quote, does not support amnesty, end quote, but might be open to a path for citizenship. Quote, what the Trump administration will discuss is a responsible path forward for immigration reform, she said. Quote, that could include legal citizenship over a period of time. And Pelosi also contradicted Trump's apparent pullback, telling reporters on Thursday that the deal she had discussed with Trump the night before is based on the DREAM Act and that the president had, quote, an understanding that there's a path to citizenship in the DREAM Act, end quote. There were contradictory statements on the border wall, too. 
Trump himself said, quote, funding will come later, but then later declared, quote, if there's not a wall, we're doing nothing. With all this confusion over who said what to whom and what it meant to both sides of the conversation, I thought it would be helpful to remind you the Tea Party Patriots has always been a strong supporter of the rule of law, and consequently, Tea Party Patriots has always been opposed to amnesty for illegal immigrants. In this case, amnesty is defined as allowing an illegal immigrant to become a U.S. citizen without being required to return to the country of his or her origin and apply properly for legal entry into the United States. It's neither fair nor right to allow people who have broken the law to break in line in front of people who are following the law. There's already a legal path to citizenship for those wishing to immigrate to the United States. Anyone who decided to get off that path and enter the United States illegally should not be given any sort of amnesty, for it's neither fair nor equal treatment under the law. Of course, the fact remains that neither Schumer nor Pelosi has the power to deliver the necessary votes to codify DACA. They're the minority leaders of their respective bodies. They don't control the floor schedules. Senate Majority Leader McConnell and House Speaker Ryan do. But both McConnell and Ryan are believed to be supporters of codifying DACA. The GOP establishment is on board, as Trump suggests, but is a majority of the House Republican Conference on board? Ryan promised conservatives when he became speaker two years ago that he would not bring any kind of immigration legislation to the floor unless it has the support of at least a majority of his Republican colleagues. We'll see. On the Obamacare front. Last Wednesday, Republican Senators Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, joined by their colleagues Dean Heller of Nevada and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, introduced their new bills to repeal some elements of Obamacare and turn the rest into a block grant program. We talked about this bill a little bit last week, but it appears to be gaining steam, so I want to do a deep dive. The Graham-Cassidy bill is based on the successful welfare reform in the 1990s. Rather than repeal Obamacare entirely, which is made impossible by the Senate Republican leadership's unwillingness to challenge the ruling of the Senate parliamentarian that Obamacare's insurance company regulations cannot be repealed using the reconciliation process. The bill shifts as much control and money as possible out of Washington and to the states. On the good side, the bill begins by repealing the individual mandate and the employer mandate. It would no longer be a requirement of law that individuals who do not receive health insurance from their employer or from a government program of some kind go out and purchase their health insurance from an Obamacare exchange or pay a tax penalty. And it would no longer be a requirement of the law that employers with more than 49 employees offer health insurance to their employees or pay a penalty. The removal of that legal requirement for employers would allow many small businesses to grow beyond their current size. They've been arbitrarily capped at 49 by employers who can't afford to hire that 50th employee because that would trip the employer mandate. In addition, the bill repeals the medical device tax. That's a tax that encourages our most important medical innovators to move their research and development operations overseas. And repealing that tax would return between $250 billion and $300 billion to the economy over the next 10 years. Further, the bill repeals all of Obamacare's subsidies and spending. No more insurance company bailouts. So the bill cuts taxes, cuts spending, and cuts the deficit. Those are all good. Perhaps most importantly, the bill ends the federal entitlement to Medicaid and equalizes the per-person spending in Obamacare. Obamacare spending is unfairly tilted towards states that choose to have high Medicaid costs. Under Obamacare's current spending formula, for instance, Massachusetts, a state with just 2% of the nation's population, 
receives 7% of the total money spent. That's twice as much as the next highest state, California, which itself receives far more on a per capita basis than all but Massachusetts. In fact, Obamacare's spending formula is so lopsided toward high-cost states that just four states, Massachusetts, California, New York, and Maryland, with just 20% of the nation's population, receive 40% of the total Obamacare funding. The Graham-Cassidy bill addresses this inequity by repealing Obamacare's funding formula and instituting in its place a formula that's much more equitable. When it's fully phased in in 2026, each state's spending would be capped on a per capita basis, with every state receiving exactly the same amount of money for each funding recipient. That means there would no longer be an advantage for states that want to offer high-cost Medicaid coverage to their populations. They would no longer be able to foist the cost off on federal taxpayers all over the country, but would have their spending limited instead. With Obamacare funding moving from Washington to the states, innovation would rule. States would be able to design their own health care systems tailored to the needs of their individual populations. Some would experiment with expanded health savings accounts, while others might try to implement a single-payer system. The states would once again be laboratories for health care innovation, and the nation as a whole would benefit from seeing what works and what doesn't. There's a bad side, though. On the bad side, the bill does not fully repeal Obamacare. It leaves in place most of the tax increases and all of the insurance company regulations that have been driving premium prices through the roof. It does not explicitly repeal Congress's illegal special exemption from Obamacare. And because it would allow states to design their own plans, that means that some states could even choose to implement a single-payer system. And Republicans who pass, the, who pass this plan would be in some ways responsible for that. So that's a deep dive on the bill itself. Now, what's going on with it? Senator Cassidy said late last week that he believed he had 48 or 49 Republican votes. He believes four senators are undecided. Senators McCain, Murkowski, Collins, and Rand Paul of Kentucky. Rand Paul has since announced that he's planning to vote no on the bill because it's not full repeal. Senator McCain, on the other hand, has indicated he may be a yes vote. That leaves Senators Murkowski and Collins, both of whom voted no when Senate Republicans tried to move their reconciliation bill last time. Both of them are known to be supporters of Planned Parenthood, and both object to the inclusion of a one-year cutoff of federal funds to Planned Parenthood that's found in the Graham-Cassidy bill. But the Senate parliamentarian is likely to rule that provision unacceptable on a reconciliation bill. If that provision is removed from the bill, it would allay their concerns over Planned Parenthood funding and could open the door for one or both of them to vote for the bill. Because the Senate parliamentarian has ruled that the reconciliation vehicle based on the FY 2017 budget resolution expires on September 30, Senate Republicans have only a few days to pass this bill under the reconciliation process, which allows them to pass the bill with 51 votes instead of the 60 needed to overcome a filibuster. They have to have a score from the Congressional Budget Office before they can vote on the bill, but they don't necessarily have to wait for that CBO score before they start the voterama that follows the end of debate on a reconciliation bill. Tea Party Patriots polled our supporters about this bill last week. A majority of Tea Party Patriots supporters oppose this bill. But some of these same supporters who oppose the bill personally are willing to set aside their personal preference and have Tea Party Patriots support this legislation as a step toward Obamacare repeal. We do not believe the bill repeals Obamacare, and we are not settling for this bill. 
We are continuing to push for full repeal of Obamacare, and we are continuing to push for full repeal of Congress's illegal exemption from Obamacare. We will even push for amendments to the bill that give even more freedom from the Title I insurance regulations. We reserve the right to withdraw support if the final bill veers too much from our current understanding of the legislative text. Majority Leader McConnell is weighing his options. He hasn't yet committed to bringing the bill up and is reported to be preparing to canvass his Republican colleagues today and then hold further discussions at the GOP policy lunch tomorrow. Finally, on the tax reform front, last Wednesday, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady announced the Republican leadership's preferred schedule for tax reform. They plan to release details of their proposal on Monday, September 25th. That's next Monday with a view to then passing a budget resolution through the House in mid-October, then having the Ways and Means Committee draft the legislation based on that budget resolution. That budget resolution, they believe, will set them up to pass a tax reform bill via the reconciliation process so they don't need Democrat votes. But they've got a problem on their hands. The House Freedom Caucus wants to know what are the details of tax reform before they'll vote for the budget resolution. They don't want a replay of the Obamacare exercise, where they were told to vote for a shell budget resolution that would set up Obamacare repeal, only to find out later that the leadership's so-called repeal bill didn't actually repeal Obamacare. This time, they want to know what's in the tax reform package before they commit to voting for the budget resolution. That conflict has yet to be worked out. Stay tuned. And that's our Washington Report for this week.